he really was clear from the offset throughout the whole thing was really reinforcing was like you can't fail you can't fail there's no bad there's no wrong it's all up for play you're listening to skip intro with me krista smith at eight years old carrie mulligan saw her brother perform in a school production of the king and i deeply moved by the experience she begged to be included and eventually was granted a small part. In the years since, that unbridled drive and passion for acting remained steadfast. Carrie has established herself as one of the most talented actors working today across both stage and screen, giving unforgettable performances in films like An Education, Never Let Me Go, Shame, The Great Gatsby, and Promising Young Woman. Today, we're here to talk about her role in Maestro, Bradley Cooper's chronicling of the lifelong relationship between composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein and his wife, Felicia Montalegre Cone Bernstein. Carrie brings unwavering strength and vulnerability to her portrayal of Felicia, who Bradley asked her to play back in 2018. Leading up to production, she invested herself deeply into the project, diving into archival material working closely with the three Bernstein children, and even visiting Felicia's family in Santiago, Chile. Today, we'll talk about her experience finding Felicia's character, collaborating with Bradley, and bringing the epic undertaking of Maestro to life. Okay, Carrie Mulligan, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. I have been waiting to talk to you since I saw this movie months ago. I've seen it several times since with an audience in Lincoln Center and again in in Los Angeles. I have said this to you in person. I'm going to immortalize it on a podcast. You're outrageous in this movie. (laughs) I mean, I cannot take it. You anchor this movie. And I know it's called Maestro, and obviously it's a two-hander between you and Bradley, but I just have to say that out loud. I know it's hard to look at work and to kind of sometimes to take the accolades, but you really just, it's magnificent performance. And like I said, the only word I can think of is outrageous. Thank you so much. We have known each other for a long time. I do take that. That's very kind. Thank you. I love it. I do love it. (laughs) All right. Well, let's let me just kind of jump back to like when this all started, because I want my listeners to know, like this has been six years in the making, basically. And Bradley Cooper always had you in mind for Felicia, for Leonard Bernstein's wife. And he approached you literally six years ago. Correct. Can you just tell me a little bit like why do you think you and what was that connection and what has that been like kind of in that prep? lead up? Is it comforting? Is it even more anxious that you have so much time? I mean, can you just talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. So it was, yeah, 2018. So he was, I think, working on it for long, you know, before we met on it. I think there were photographs that maybe reminded him we had similar hair for, you know, I've done all sorts of weird things to my hair. So I think I've resembled maybe quite a few people in my because I'm always <laughs> changing my hair for different things. But he, at that time, I think he'd seen me with my hair up and stuff and it was blonde and there were, you know, there were sort of things that were he, I think I was sort of coming into his head when he was thinking about it and starting to write bits of it. And we had known each other. We'd done, weirdly, actually, he's one of the first people I told that I was pregnant with my first baby because we were both in New York doing Broadway. He was doing Elephant Man. I was doing Skylight with Bill Nye. And we ended up doing this New York Times like interviewing each other kind of situation Mm -hmm. thing. And we did a photo shoot together and I'd known him a little bit, but halfway through this 
photo shoot where he's sort of standing behind me and he was just making me laugh so much. I was like, by the way, I'm pregnant. <laughs> and I didn't know why I, was, I just trusted him. So I was like, here you go. And then I carried on doing that play for months, pregnant without mm. anyone knowing. But he knew. So I don't know. We just always kind of got on and we always kind of, and I think we both, you know, we sort of both loved theatre. Kind of he always used to come and see me and stuff. I remember so clearly when he came to see Skylight, he came in London and in New York to see me and Bill and I. He's good friends with Bill. So we always had this kind of little thing. And then and then I'd found, yeah, then I knew at some point he was coming to see, I was doing this one woman show in the Manetta Lane Theatre in the village and he was coming and I didn't know when. But of course he came to the first preview, which is ideal. <laughs> and so, yeah, he came to the first show of that. And then we met, he said, can you come and have a coffee and talk about, you know, this thing I want to do like three days later or something. And that was 2000, summer of 2018. Wow. Wow. And yeah. you've talked through the course of, you know, the release of this film, campaigning the film out there for the world, that that this is the not the first time, but you really felt the difference like you are all in. And yeah. I look at your performances and I always feel you're all in. Tell me what all in meant for this that made it different from all those other experiences. Well, I mean, there's no all in like Bradley's all in. Bradley's all in. is so, as you know, the the amount of work he did to do this was unlike anything I've seen before, both as an actor, but also, you know, as a director or a writer, you know, everything. He just couldn't have invested more of his life into the process. But I think for me, there was, there was a bit of me that had always thought like, oh, when you're doing a very specific dialect and you're, you know, you're trying to sort of, I don't know, not become someone else. I don't think I was doing, there was no impersonation, I think. It was just more like, right, well, this is, this is someone who is, I definitely sort of recognize things about her that felt, but this is someone quite other than me. And in many ways, like, you know, the way she spoke and, you know, her sort of, you know, frankness and her, you know, sort of slightly sort of tough exterior, you know, there was lots of things that just felt like, oh, this is a completely different person. And I, and I think to really do it, I have to kind of, that just takes a lot of, work and also probably of not being nervous of making a fool of myself because you know there was lots of stuff about it that felt like a real risk like you know Bradley wanted to improvise in places in our characters which meant being so comfortable in the dialect that we didn't even need to think about it and we were in our dialect all day every day on set and you know and there was stuff like that that had always made me go like oh gosh that's embarrassing <laughs> or just like you know Ugh. but I think it wasn't that I felt it was embarrassing it was actually just I felt nervous because I thought oh I don't want anyone to think that I'm I can't do it or that I'm not good enough to do it or there was a lot of my sort of standing in my own way where I, I wished I could have just been a bit more brave and I had sort of probably just held back a bit because I thought I could fail. What he really was clear on from the offset throughout the whole thing was really reinforcing. It was like, you can't fail, you can't fail. There's no bad, there's no wrong. It's all up for play. And and so it was, it was totally led by him, completely led by him to do that. But it did mean that I just sort of, yeah, put away my kind of slight reticence about sort of that kind of work and just did did it. And I'm so glad I did. And I do think it's changed most of how I'll work going forward. But this was a very specific part, you know, playing a real person is such a responsibility. Mm -hmm. And attached to another real person. I mean, it, it was interesting because yeah. I heard him talk about this dream work, right? For a non-actor, someone that's uh, very close to a lot of actors, I could kind of understand that experience of you're just basically sharing your like kind of subconscious, right? With someone yeah. through that 
rehearsal process, which was, I think it was like two weeks or something, you guys really dug in. I mean, it's amazing that you weren't, as two actors, you're not sick of each other, but you're even more bonded to like, okay, this is, you're equally as vested. You're talking about your dreams. And then it was an interesting thing, because I remember saying to Kim, who was our teacher who was taking us through, I was like, since I've had children, I don't really dream. I just sort of exist. You know, I just sort of, I can't remember them. Because you're always woken up by someone you you don't have that thing of like waking up and stretching and yawning and thinking oh what was I just it was up you're up because someone's like hitting you or you know someone's shouting in the other room and so I said I don't think I will remember them every day and the idea is that you remember your dreams you write them down you bring them into the workshop and she said well just make them up because all we're doing is trying to get into your subconscious so whether you're actually dreaming them or you just make them up on the spot we're still it's still revealing something about you know, your subconscious. And that's what we're trying to kind of tap into. And, and and the basic theory of it, and Bradley explains it a lot better than I do, because he's done this forever, is basically connecting your character to your subconscious. So, you, so there are kind of intrinsic links between you, which mean that you don't need to act, basically, that there are things mm-hmm. that are just kind of, it feels a lot more like the the script and the character and all that is just sort of there at your disposal and you don't have to reach for stuff and I definitely found that that was the case and there were things that came up in the workshop like I had a dream about my grandmother and you know that that was very who's passed away and I was very close to and she was probably the person I've known but known the most intimately in the, the sort of latter part of her life and it was very present you know when we were shooting the stuff at the end of Felicia's life and for no real reason that I could lay out in a Sort of, you know, I couldn't write an essay about why it was that those things were connected because she didn't die of cancer, she had dementia, there was all sorts of differences, but there was something in the physicality, something in the way that these moments of sort of fury would come out of her. Yeah, it was just a bizarre thing, really. I can't really explain it, but I, I think it was invaluable and, and amazing things that, came, that are such a big part of the film came out of it, like sitting back to back, you know, that sort of, that book ends the film and that was just something that came out of that workshop. One of the things that also strikes me is we know Bradley transforms into Lenny. I mean, he is Lenny. There's no more Bradley there when you're looking at him in this character. So in essence, I was thinking you it's almost like you were being directed by Lenny. What was that like for you? I couldn't see the lines. I mean, it's sort of like when you're watching the film. And I said this to him the other night because I watched it finished for the first time at the L.A. premiere. And I found him afterwards and I just said, like, it's nuts. Like, I've never seen anything like it's. It's the most extraordinary performance. And I can't see him, you know. So it's, it's been so weird doing all this press with Bradley because I, for months, genuinely was working with Lenny and was working, you know. So, and and the, the odd day where he wasn't Lenny, I found really disconcerting. I was like, oh, he's wearing a Phillies jacket and he's all normal. And I just found it sort of odd. But, but no, it was like Lenny conducting the movie, but it was also... People called him Bradley. That was he wasn't like you have to call me Lenny, or he wasn't. You know, it didn't feel like artifice. It just felt like oh, he's comfortably this other person now, but he's also able to talk in very specific detail about costume, makeup, production design, cinematography, how he wants a shot to look. You know, but it would be in that sort of manner of I suppose a Lenny who is in a good place, you know, for the most part, uh, apart from when we were shooting the bits at the end where Felicia's unwell. I found it that he made the set feel more like more like a big play, more like a company of actors. There was no real, like, crew actor division. So he would speak to them whilst we were in, in the middle of takes. If he was off camera or if it's, even if his mouth was just covered for a minute, he could be directing the dolly grip to come in closer 
or, you know, to move an actor, you know, to a place in the room that he wanted them to be. So he could do a lot when he was literally even on camera. And that that compartmentalization, or I suppose not compartmentalization on his behalf, I think was just kind of astounding because I couldn't figure out how he was doing that. You know, he he was thinking about the scene, thinking about how he was feeling in the scene, thinking about other people's performances, but also being like, do you know what? I need Mango the dollar grip to get in a bit closer to get this shot. You know, and you're like, what? How is your brain doing that? But I really enjoyed it. I kind of loved it. It made me feel like in on it, you know, in a weird way and not kind of a standalone performer. Like we were all kind of trying to do it together. Mm-hmm. A collective. Yeah. What makes this performance so outrageous to me is that there's like throughout the whole thing, simultaneously, there's so much tension and clashing between Felicia's strength and her vulnerability. Mm. Almost in every scene you see it. And there's this underlying river of love right at the bottom of both of those things. But I guess my question would be (laughs) keeping those things alive constantly on a set and then also adding to that the kind of improv that you needed to do. How was that for an actress? So much fun. I can't think of a day where I wasn't sort of completely delighted, even in the days when we were doing the sort of sadder stuff. Certainly Thanksgiving Day fight, I had a complete blast. I absolutely loved it. You know, there's there's this thing that we often, I think, you know, sometimes think, oh, this is going to be taxing. And it is, but also the satisfaction or the feeling of thinking, well, I think we did that right or that felt really honest. I think, oh, thank goodness, like we did something that felt real or like not acting or it didn't you know it didn't feel like everything we shot towards the end where Felicia's not well you know it's not it's a weird kind of it's not kind of it's why it's like it's some mix between masochism and but you know you're you're doing something that is feels painful in this in the moment that you're doing it and then afterwards it feels kind of immediately kind of you know, really rewarding because you think, well, that's that I think feels like what it should feel like. Well, that felt like we didn't, we weren't reaching for something or pretending something. It felt like an honest sort of, so it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird mix, but I didn't feel, I think because also because Bradley was directing, he was Lenny, he was Lenny, you know, I always like my experience of the film. And I think this was very much by design from Bradley was like, it's all about Lenny. You know, so I didn't, I think like he deliberately took the onus off me so that I could observe, so that it didn't feel, I didn't have to use all the energy and the, uh, you know, logistical energy and emotional energy of being a leader on set. You know, he had to do that, you know, and I think that was very within keeping of his character, but he had to be the person that made the crew feel great, the person that made all the actors feel really excited and welcome, the guy that was like, getting everyone, getting all the crowd scenes to be really sparkling. You know, there's so much energy that Bradley expended on making everyone feel the way they needed to feel to do their job the best they could. And I think the thing that he did for me was to allow me to watch, you know, and to be close, but to not be, I didn't have to put on a show for anyone. I could just be, you know, Mm -hmm. Felicia just observes, she just watches and things sort of reflect onto her as opposed mm-hmm. to her kind of using and there was and, and usually that sort of feels like there's sort of a lack of agency in a character it didn't feel that way at all with Felicia but I did I just felt like my role was just to be near him you know and there's all these like funny photos of us behind the scenes photos of us where I'm just sort of like he's just clearly deep in thought he's sometimes got his eyes closed he's thinking through the whole movie and I'm just standing like 
one foot away from him, doing almost exactly the same mannerisms, but just silent and watching him because I was always just sort of there. Um, and that all, that all those dynamics, it was weird. It just We just became very much their dynamic. It was always Lenny would be leading things, Felicia would be close by, you know, and that was how the whole kind of film was. Even till now, I feel like it's still a little bit of a hangover. I noticed it on the red carpet where I was sort of translating things that he was trying to say <laughs> to like, like e-news or whatever. He'd be trying to say something and I'd be like, I'm just going to explain what he means. <laughs> but yeah, it was a kind of delightful little thing where we kind of, it did bleed over into our real lives. Oh, I love it. Well, let's talk about that Thanksgiving scene because in the Dakota famous apartment building in New York where they live, completely recreated. I have no doubt cinephiles, actors, director, everybody that sees that scene, it implants on them and people are talking about it afterwards just because it's one shot. There's no coverage. It's not like now close up on Felicia's reaction, now close up on Lenny's reaction. It's shot at this like intimate distance, but you feel the mm-hmm. tension so acutely as as an audience member how many takes and like what was that like not to get your coverage it's almost like a play in oh, a way i loved it yeah it was so like a play it was three takes and that's the third take and that was it and then we downed tools and went home and the first two takes they were like fine but there was just something about them that just felt like there was no kind of crescendo and the whole thing like the way they spoke you know when you listen to the tapes of them there's such music to their and and to a you know to a couple that have been in a relationship for that long you know they tell a story when they tell anecdotes they tell a story in a certain way but they also fight in a certain way and this the fight was just sort of not i don't know it just didn't anyway the first two takes were were something and then the third take i think because i my position moved i was in the window i was standing up and for you know i had a bit more kind of status and it's like really basic like actor vibe of like maybe stand up and smoke a cigarette by the window and then you might feel a bit more in control of things than I did. Um, and he also, in the third take, I think I don't think he'd done this in the first two takes, but you know, this is something Bradley would do a lot where he would sort of direct me by playing Lenny in a certain way. So he would it would be less, here's a note, but he definitely did give me notes, but it would be also, he would do something that would elicit a certain response in me. So in that third take, he came in he was a little bit more hungover than he'd been the f- previous takes. He was wearing his, he wouldn't take his sunglasses off. He bumped into the furniture. You know, all of these things were like little kind of like annoying nuggets that he, you know, that kind of pushed and pushed and pushed. And, and for some reason, that third take just kind of took off. Darling? Mm. Oh. For a second, I thought <laughs> it was quite so a stunt that you pulled. What? That was quite a stunt that you pulled. What do you mean? Well, darling, you put the pillow outside and then by slippers and a toothpaste and a toothbrush, and I haven't seen you since. I understand you're angry with me. Jesus Christ. But, I mean, let's be reasonable. Yeah, there is a saying in Chile about never standing under a bird that's full of shit. And I've just been living under that fucking bird for so long. It's actually become comedic. Well, I think that you're letting your sadness oh, get stop the. Be- it. Well, let me this at least finish. Let me finish what no. I'm going to no. say. 
I think no. you're letting your this sadness get the better of you. This has nothing to do with me. That's, it's about you. Okay. So you should love it. At the end, he pauses to hear the children. Of course, the children weren't outside. So I was just like, he's pausing for something. I didn't know. I, I knew he must be pausing for someone at the door. And then I left the room and said I would go. And we, I waited for a second until he cut because it was a few more minutes on him, a few more seconds on him just standing on his own in the room. And then I walked back in and we looked at each other and we were like, well, okay, that's that's it, right? We're just gonna, let's not do it again. He was like, yeah, let's not do it again. And there was some discussion about, you know, but he just never wanted to shoot coverage because he didn't sort of, he was like, that's not how you, you know, as a child, you don't watch your parents fight in close up. You watch them from a doorway where you're sort of cowering or the top of the stairs. And, you know, he wanted it to be something kind of, that you couldn't intervene in. And for us, for, you know, every actor I've told that to is like, that's the dream. Do a big wide, get it all, it feels good. And then you don't have to try and, you know, I, off, I'm terrible. I always, I always get annoyed with myself for trying to recreate something that felt really good in a wide shot and try and make it the same or better for a close up. And it never ever works. It's kind of a pointless exercise, but I was delighted to only have to do it those mm. three times. It's incredible. The physicality of of the two of you. I mean, it, the film covers four decades of their lives. And I know Bradley worked with an incredible group of costume, hair, makeup. The, he assembled like the dream team for production. And, and you actually ended up wearing, I think, some of Felicia's actual real clothes that the Bernstein mm -hmm. family had. And so you were fully in it. But how did that physically take over your body going from the young you're in love when it's in black and white and then as you said towards the end when she's very 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 ill I think you are aided a lot by costume and makeup I mean I think you know Mark Bridges and Kevin Thompson and Sean Grigg in terms of the environment that we were in the way that we were dressed and made up the the wigs that Kay did were so so I mean I can't I've never I've never really worn wigs you know I've worn sort of like you know, fun. I wore a couple of wigs and promising a woman, but this was like these wigs were so ingenious. They, you know, they aged you in such a specific way, and or de-aged. You know, when I'm when I'm younger, when I'm meant to be 25, I had a, you know my hairline was like an inch further forward, and the you know it was all the way that they had to consider hair and makeup for the black and white film was so interesting because of course it's not how you shoot for color. And we didn't shoot digitally, we shot on black and white film. So they had to make really clear choices about how they were gonna make us up and put us in costumes for that stuff. Um, but it was amazing because I kind of thought like playing a character over 30 years and one who also gets sick at the end, I'd need to sort of draw up some sort of chart to figure out, you know, like, right on this day, I'm this is how I'm feeling and this part of my hand is sore or, um, but actually when it came to it, you know, looking in the mirror did so much work, you know, particularly when I was ill because the makeup that Sean Grigg and Duncan Jarman, who did the prosthetics, the makeup they did on me for that was just so brilliant that I would look in the mirror on those days when we were shooting that stuff. And it just made you feel like, made you feel like crying, it was, you know, it's just to see, you know, to see that. And uh, it was really affecting, I think. Um, so lots of that stuff was sort of done for us. And then the physicality of all of it, um, you know, again, it was a costume thing that helped me so much for uh, the for the stuff when Felicia was not well. There was a sort of little shawl that she wears. Um, I think that was something that either it was a photo reference or it was something that Felicia actually wore. Um, but they'd either recreated something or the family had actually given us something that was a little shawl that she wore over her shoulders 
Um, and there was something about that, you know, that she needs to wear this shawl because she's cold, even though it's warm inside and no one else is wearing extra layers, like speaks to her fragility. And so it all kind of tied in together, I think. Mm. Mm. It's just, and, and just to be in that house too, it's just haunted in the best way by their lives. You know, it's still so. Yeah. But apparently also haunted in a genuine way. Oh, <laughs> I mean, really? they all talk about, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they talk a lot about people seeing Felicia in the garden mm-hmm. up at, at their house. So haunted in a wonderful way, but I think, you know, an absolutely wonderful people. And, and Lenny says in the film, Right uh, at the top. Julia Vega, Julia Vega sees her and the kids are mad because they've never seen her and mm. they don't see her. But friends have seen Felicia in the garden and at the top of the stairs. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's so many great scenes. I think about the one when he finishes composing and they're, I've done it, I've done it. And she just runs out the window and jumps in the pool. Yeah. And I imagine that must have been kind of stressful, but also very fun to play. You said that you watched it for the first time in full in Los Angeles, that beautiful Academy Theater, right? It's gorgeous, 900 plus seat theater with the sound. What were some of the impressions for you to see it for the first time? I'm always interested in when people laugh, you know, people laugh at the, at the, the sort of, I don't know, there was sort of laughter in places. I thought, that's so funny. That never occurred to me. You know, that always kind of surprised me. Um, I think the kind of epic scale of it is so surprising because it it felt to me like such an intimate small thing you know um despite the sort of musical sequences like there was something about it that just felt like you know and Bradley would say it a lot he'd be like it's just you and me man it's just like this is just do you can you believe they're letting us do this like it was so intimate and personal um so to see actually what he made was this epic film um, but that the heart of it still is that sort of intimacy, I think is amazing. And I said to him, I mean, I ran downstairs after the premiere and found him because he was leaving, you know, that night to go back to New York. And I just, and we had been sort of taken off in separate directions at this after party. And I just, I heard he was leaving and I went outside and I just said like, I mean, everything about his performance kills me, but but to really watch it for the first time, you know, to not think of him as director, to think of him just as actor, and to think about, you know, Ely made me cry. And I was like, I'm not going to cry at the premiere. This is ridiculous. Like, I've got makeup on and there's people everywhere. And I'm going to have to go and have more photos taken. I can't cry. I'm not going to cry. And Ely, I just was like, could not contain. It was just so moving what he does in that. Um, and the way he really does embody Lenny in the most insane way. Like, that is Leonard Bernstein up there. And you can't see the difference. Um, but the kind of love you know that's kind of pouring out of him and the way and the fearlessness of it i mean the actual i keep on having to stop myself saying in the interviews but like the bulls on him to like yeah, no. <laughs> go in front of the london symphony orchestra and conduct the yeah. london symphony orchestra as as one of the most iconic classical musicians in the history of our you know it's insane that he had the guts to do that and to then not just pull it off but to like conquer it. And I mean, I know as a woman and as a mom and, you know, we see it all the time in our life, right? Like, Mm. you know, two artists together and work at separate times. You really have to accommodate Mm. each other's schedules and, you know, the highs and lows of Mm. those chosen careers. But especially at this time, you realize like Felicia never really saw what she could do. We knew she was an actress and and, and good, obviously, on Broadway and Mm. and reputable Mm. and we see glamour to her and success. But we never got to fully see that because she becomes Mrs. Maestro. Growing up, you had such an internal drive within you to pursue acting. Even though you didn't attend drama school, you were ready to go all in. 
The story alone about how you wrote to the screenwriter Julian Fellows after he visited your school, that really paints such a clear picture of how you were feeling back then. It's funny, actually, because I did. A, I met Emma Corrin the other day for the first time, and they went to the same school that I did, and they were also drama ribbon. So we were both drama ribbon and both, you know, that was sort of, we were sort of undeniable drama nerds. But there was no real route in for me having not got into drama school um, and not sort of, you know, my family, my parents worked in the hotel business. Um, so I'd never really, uh, Julian Fellows was the only actor I'd ever met. So he was the one that I wrote to and said, like, I think I'm on course to go to university and study something I really don't care about. And you know, do that classic like university thing of just going and, you know, basically pissing about for three years, <laughs> going to the pub a lot and then getting loads of student debt. But I'd rather be an actor um, and skip all of that stuff. And uh, so, uh, and through a series of introductions and like just dumb luck, I managed to get um, my first job in Pride and Prejudice. And that is when I met my agent, uh, Tor Belfridge, who's my agent mm -hmm. still 20 years. She's been my agent and she has been probably the biggest influence on my life outside my parents um, in the just incredible friendship, but also the way she's guided my career, you know, uh, and helped me with decisions and trying to be involved in things that I really care and love about, you know, and love. It is a very inspirational story. You did try to get to drama school, right? And you were rejected, which is a great lesson. I mean, I have kids that are right now teenagers and trying, and sometimes you can't succeed unless you actually fail somewhere along mm. the way. And I, I love that mm. bit about your history is because it just was so burning and you, you weren't going to get detoured by a, by a rejection early on. I think I honestly, I felt like they made the right choice. You know, I, I, I wasn't, there was something that I felt like, yeah, fair. I, I, the process as well was interesting because for these schools, particularly you watch everyone else's audition. So you sit there and there's a group of like 12, 15 of you and you watch everyone else do their monologues. And I remember sitting there thinking like, Ooh, he's much better than I am. And I don't know how to do that. And oh shit, she's really good. And I think I genuinely felt like fair enough. You know, I didn't have, there was something that was not, you know, that there wasn't, they, they made the right decision, but I obviously it was bruising, but I, I kind of felt like what, well, there's nothing else I can do. So that this means I'm just going to have to find another way in because this is, you know, this is not my route. Mm -hmm. Much as I had wished it could have been, because I really, the idea of going to drama school was a real dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a time and a place, right? You weren't ready for it, yeah. you're ready for it now. And I feel as artists and even as film goers, you know, we take something from films or experiences with us in our lives and then kind of carry on. And I imagine as an actor, it's the same. You know, you, you take something from every film that you've done or play and whatnot. What will you take from this experience with Bradley and in particular, too, from Felicia and Lenny? I think the the that line that she says in the film, let's give it a whirl, has sort of been a bit of a... It's interesting because when I do theatre, for years, for some reason, I came across this poem and the last few lines of the poem, I think it's by Keir Hardy, but I can't remember the first bit of the poem, but the, the poem ends, these are our days, walk them, fear nothing. And I used to write that on my mirror, these are our days, walk them, fear nothing, before I went on stage. And it was just sort of a reminder, like, look, we're not coming back here. You know, this this audience is gonna be here to, you know, just fucking whatever, just this is it. This is the only day you'll ever do this and tomorrow it'll be different. And then in a year things will be different and just to embrace these kind of like incredible opportunities. Cause I do think 
there is, of course, everyone works hard, but there's a huge amount of just good fortune that gets you to be able to professionally act because it's such a nuts business. So I, I felt like that in theatre um, for a long time, but with film, I've always, like I said, held it down a little bit. But there was something about Felicia's sort of give it a whirl that became a bit of a kind of mantra for this job. And I think for going forward, I knew that Bradley would make a good film, but I, I don't think I had certainty over how this would go. And I'm so glad that we did give it a whirl. And I think going forward, that's a, it's like such a wonderfully playful expression of like to a sort of take on life, you know. So I think, yeah, that's my little mantra coming out of this job that will stay with me from her. Mm, give it a whirl. It's a great line. Give it a whirl. Yeah. I'm asking everybody on the podcast this season about, and I think I know the answer to this because you do have three children, but mm. where do we find Carrie on her downtime? Like when you're not working, you're not prepping or promoting? You find me on the school run, <laughs> but also with the baby. So we've got, yeah, we've got three now and the youngest is, is seven months. So it's that world again. We've reset the clock to babydom. When I do the press stuff and I do, it feels very kind of like a different mode almost to life. We live in the countryside, so it's it's pretty slow in a way that I love and very kind of community and very neighborly, which is not how I was brought up. I mean, I lived in London, I lived in Germany, but I didn't live in the countryside. But I, I love kind of living in a place that feels like very kind of slow and quiet and and lots of kind of hanging out with friends and not not venturing into town very much. I don't go to, <laughs> I like, once I get, when I go into London, it's like a, it's an event and I put on my black clothes because out in the countryside, I basically just wear like jeans and things. But in London, I, you know, I get quite excited to like put on, you know, pair of black trousers and I feel very smart <laughs> it sounds pathetic like I'm gonna wear earrings and go to London <laughs> but it's yeah it feels like a very different life so home is just very kind of you know at this stage of our lives quite kiddie based yeah I love you have like a closet for London a, a closet for America I do know. I do <laughs> and then if I wore any of that like London stuff here people would be like oh where are you going fancy you know because it's just like not what you wear down here oh my god well I have to say watching you have your baby on this promotional tour has been incredible. Just the stamina of of carrying a little person with you and making them kind of like part of the experience, not kind of separating it. I, I know how hard that is. It really does make things easier, I think, because it does. There's a risk that you can sometimes get really. And I have in the past gotten much too kind of worried or concerned about, you know, what people will think about my work or what, you know, the, the kind of what will be, what will, you know, what will I say that might be, you know, you know, it might come up with a stupid answer or on a red carpet or say something silly or, you know, or, you know, look bad in a photo. And then when you've got a little person that's waiting for you to get back to your hotel room, it all feels a lot less vitally important. And you realize like in the grand scheme of things, the work matters is very important to me, but a lot of the rest of it is not, uh, it's not where, you know, it's not enormously you know, nothing's, nothing the world will carry on tomorrow if I say a stupid thing or if my dress looks too tight or, you know, it doesn't matter. So in that sense, uh, I find it enormously helpful mm. to have a little bit. It's lovely to see you and talk to you. I look forward Me to the too. next time I get to see you in person. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you so much. 
Maestro is streaming now on Netflix. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Krista Smith, your host and creator of the show. Skip Intro is produced and edited by Isabel Arricchio and engineered by Dave Corwin. Special thanks to our coordinator, Alyssa Hillman. Please subscribe, rate, and review Skip Intro wherever you've been listening. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. If you enjoy the podcast, please go to netflixq.com for more. That's netflixqueue.com. 